Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> What's up, you guys? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Thanks for joining me. So today we're going to do another Gandalf the Red. Uh, if you remember, that's Carl Jung's Red Book. We're going to get into a chapter called The Conception of God. It's pretty interesting. Um, kind of like... Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do more than one chapter. After I read this one, I was like, I gotta probably do an episode on this one by itself. Last time, I think we hit three of them, and we've got lots to go. So, as I mentioned before, probably I'll bring these to you here and there, uh, and try not to um, try not to make a bunch of them back to back. But I wanted to do this one today. As far as a taste of things to come, I wanted to say, uh, getting into Carl Jung with the Red Book has been fun, and like I said, nowhere near over. But it reminded me of a book I started that um, I don't think I ever brought to you guys, and I I don't remember why. Uh, I know I haven't finished it, so I need to go back and probably start over again. But there was a book that Carl Jung's student wrote, a guy named um, Henry or Henri Ellen Berger. And Carl Jung said it was the book that he wished he would have written. And that was enough to intrigue me. It's like one of his students who learned from Carl Jung, and whenever you're learning something difficult, whenever you're a pioneer in something difficult, it's like, you know, you're on the, you're on the edge of chaos and order, you're right on the edge of the kind of known science, and that's what these early psychologists were doing, these depth psychologists in particular, they invented, Carl Jung and, and, you know, Freud invented this field, so you kind of expect the people that will come after them will synthesize it, um, synthesize what, you know, Jung and Freud brought to the table in new and interesting ways and simplify them and trim the fat and make it easier to understand and get right to the point. And basically you're, you're riding on the coat, on the coattails of these two great thinkers and you, you're not starting in the same place they started. They started in the dark. They had nothing to go on. You're starting with, you know, all of the progress that Freud and Jung made in the, in the field. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of expect that the followers are going to, you know, are going to, you know, second, third generation followers are going to be able to put something together that's more powerful, more to the point. And that's what Ellen Berger did. And I remember, from what I can remember, reading it, that it was like that. It was, it was really, really interesting. Um, I bring it up because I definitely want to get back to that, and I promise I will. But also, I bumped into another author that has a connection to Jung, and it's pretty interesting. Um, It's a lady. That's interesting, too, you know, in this field. 
I'm pulling it over here. Her name is Mary Louise von Franz. Apparently, she was a. Um, I think she was. You could say she was a student of Young, but she wasn't a pupil of Young. You know, she wasn't in his. You know, in his uh, uh, class. She wasn't. Uh, she you know she wasn't his apprentice or anything. Um, but she wrote a book called um, Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, and I thought that was pretty interesting because uh, I'm kind of doing that analysis with you know that archetypal characters in mythology, which is which is what Young and Ellen Berger did. It's pretty interesting. It's what it's what Joseph Campbell did, you know, and lots of other people, you know, like George Frazier, even even earlier. Um, so I, I you know, I, I, I really like that. And I want to do more of that. So I never heard of this lady before Marie Louise von Franz, but apparently she worked with Carl Jung. She was a she was a Swiss by, you know, by nationality. And so was so was Carl Jung. And so was my family, by the way. But um, uh, but she met him there in Switzerland, and uh, it made a big impact on her. And she ended up working with him in his later years, uh, which was some of the stuff Young did that was the most out there. Maybe not as out there as the Red Book that we're reading that we we're reading and will continue to read. But it was stuff he did on alchemy, you know, like like medieval alchemy. And he wrote a bunch of stuff on it from a psychological perspective. That alchemy, that trying to make lead from gold or trying to transmutate um, uh, elements, that that was symbolic of the transformation of uh, human psyche, you know, the various transformations that we go through in our lives where we reinvent ourselves and we, you know, are become reborn and new phases of our life. It's really interesting stuff. Apparently, she helped them out with that. She she translated a lot of the works from Latin and, and all that so that Jung could, could do his work. So she's pretty important and I never heard of her. And I have to say, since I point out that she's a woman, um, there's like not a great deal. Like I have a handful of books uh, authored by women, and the ones that I, I have are really, really awesome. And I wonder why that is. I wonder, a lot, a lot of these come from the 1800s, so maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, but the lady, uh, the lady that wrote the book about the Vikings that I sent to Kyle that he keeps telling me he's reading, but I'm not so sure about it, um, she, that was a woman, and she... I don't have the book handy or I tell you her name. Um, Helen Gruber, I think something like that. Um, but so, so she read that, wrote that book. And there was another lady who wrote a book called the gate of horn, Rachel, something I can't remember now. Um, but it's been a long time since I've read it, but just amazing stuff. Um, so anyway, I guess I'm just saying that to say, uh, I recognize most of every, everything we're reading is from, uh, from guys, but, um, uh, as we get more into young, we're going to see that a different perspective. And I wonder how close, um, this Marie Louise von Franz lady is to Ellen Berger and young and myself. So I'll probably be bringing that to you sooner rather than later. Maybe I'll take a break from the red book and do some of this fairy tale stuff. Maybe I'll pick one, like one that we'd all know and talk about it. Maybe rumble stiltskin or something like that. We'll see what I can find. All right, that aside, uh, we're getting into part four of Gandalf the Red. Um, we are not even halfway through Young's Red Book. Um, I don't know I don't know what the fates have in store for the rest of that, but uh, I'll keep bringing you what I find interesting, and maybe that'll be two or three more episodes. Maybe that'll be a dozen more. I don't know. Um, but today, we're going to focus on Young's conception of God. And this was another moment in Young's sort of fantasy world, his fantasy life. Uh, to refresh your memory, what he calls active imagination. 
So this is, again, Carl Jung um, sitting down quietly by himself somewhere, contemplating uh, deeply, clearing his mind, meditating. I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something that allows him to get into a kind of a dream state or something like a dream state. And in this dream state, he can... He can bring dream images to mind and he can sort of interact with them and play with them. And that's what he's been doing this whole time. And he talks about it like, like it's a journey, like it's a quest, but like it's a dangerous one. You know, it's, he's, he's going into himself. He's allowing his, his unconscious to sort of come closer to him. He's where he can touch it. You know, he describes bringing the image of his soul and she, she was a woman, you know, this figure of a woman that he was able to bring into his mind's eye, you know, where it comes from. He doesn't know, you know, it comes from the unconscious. It's a way for him to, to, like I say, come closer to this unknown part of, of ourselves, our, our unconscious part. And I think of the unconscious as, well, pretty much synonymous with God. You know, uh, we can get into you know the, the nitty gritty and talk about talk about that in more detail. But really, what I what I believe is that the un, the unknown part of ourselves, the part that from a psychological perspective we'll call the unconscious, that is that is the eternal thing. That is the sacred thing. That is the thing that all religions are based on the the recognition of. And so, when we're talking about Jung's conception of God, it's something like that that we're talking about. We're talking about we're talking about the things that exist in Carl Jung's psyche that he can't explain, that supersede him, and that are transpersonal, that are uh, that are applicable to every every human being on Earth and beyond. It's something that we have in common with all of creation. Something like sentience, something that's eternal, that wasn't born and doesn't die. You see how these descriptors are beginning to sound like the way we would describe God. So this is kind of what we're going to get from Jung, but in a roundabout way. Because remember. Jung is asking these questions. He's seeking the answers, you know, uh, to understand what God is. But how he gets those answers is to go deep into himself and to try to and try to allow the unconscious to speak to him through him to get the answers that he doesn't have, but he, he, but exist in his unconscious. Something like that. So, without further ado, when we left off in part three. Jung had escaped into the desert of his self. So remember, he said something about how if you don't, if you aren't living in a, in a dwelling, if you're not, if you're not in a place, you're not maintaining it, that it gets old and dirty, and nature creeps in and starts to deteriorate, and things fall apart. They have to be maintained. And he made the point that when he when he was silent and alone with himself, that he 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 went into himself so he could dwell there. Not, not in the outside world, not in other people's thoughts and ideas, but within himself. And he found that place to be dilapidated. He found that place to be full of cobwebs and decay and paint chipping off the wall. This is all symbolic, of course, but he found his soul to be a desert. That's what he said it was. And it was painful for him to even be there. Like imagine being in solitary confinement, being all alone. That's how he felt within himself, like it was a prison, you know? Now, he suffered in solitude, in the desert, until his inner self began to sprout with new life. So he waited and waited and waited until he began to see the desert blooming, if you remember that. 
So in his mind's eye, he's in looking at, at a representation of his inner self. <clears throat> and it's a, a wasteland with no life in it. It's, it's, it's a desert. And after long enough and with enough sacrifice, he starts to see that change, you know, and there's life again within himself. And it's, it's the presence of his soul in the desert that triggered that transformation. You know, he longed for his soul. He beckoned and strived for it until the image of his soul appeared to him. And you'll remember that moment from the, from the last episode when his, when his soul that he had been searching after and seeking for, finally, it finally manifests itself to him. And how it does that is sort of unexplainable. It's like how an image appears in your dream. Well, this is what happened to Jung, but it was in his, an awaking, meditative type of a state. And he sees this image appear seemingly out of nowhere from his unconscious. And he recognizes it as his own soul, the image of his soul. And you have to remember that an image to Jung is something very important. You know, the most important things in his psychology he calls archetypes. And they are images. They're images that have meaning associated with them. They're images that direct our behavior. They're images that exist in, in our psyches always and we don't understand how they got there. You know, they're a mystery. But images are force and power to Carl Jung. And the image of his soul is no exception. And remember what he said in the prior episodes, that when he sought after his soul, he, he had this back and forth. It was like he wanted it, but he didn't want it. He was afraid of it. So he was afraid of his soul, which he didn't understand, and was forced to confront her, to engage her, to become her. You know, that has to do with integrating these psychological forces into, into his self, as Carl Jung likes, likes to talk about, integrating the forces. So he had to integrate his soul into his self to claim what, what, what he had always been, you know? But this confrontation was, and is for all of us, civil war. You know, a battle between our self and our soul, something like that. And the battle of self and soul it, it ultimately resolves in something new. You know, the self and the soul becoming one. They become one integrated whole, and that's something that it wasn't before. It becomes something new. And in creating this new thing, well, the old thing kind of dies, doesn't it? It doesn't exist anymore. So what you have is something reborn from its own corpse. You know, transformed like the phoenix from its ashes. Something like that. Rebirth. All right, so that brings us to our first quote here. It goes something like this. Jung says, On the second night thereafter, I spoke to my soul and said, This new world appears weak and artificial to me. The spirit of the depth suddenly erupted. He filled me with intoxication and spoke these words. All right, pump the brakes. Before I give you what the spirit of the depth said to Carl Jung, I just want to refresh your memory here. He has encountered his soul. He's seen the desert, uh, this image of a desert that he's sitting in that represents his self or his psyche. He sees that beginning to bloom with new life. He's, something is going in the right direction. But he's, Carl Jung is still suspicious of it a little bit. <clears throat> he says, this new world appears artificial, appears weak. And... What does he mean by that? It's something like, 
he sees this new life sprouting out of nowhere where nothing was before in this desert. And it doesn't feel, it feels like an illusion, you know? And that's something you see in the desert, isn't it? What do they call those illusions? They, they see water in the desert where there's no water there. Um, something like an illusion. And he feels something like an imposter, you know? It's like he's caused this new life to develop within himself. Like he's created something out of nothing, you know, the way that, the way that God does in the Bible in the beginning, you know? And he doesn't know how he's done it. He doesn't feel worthy of that power, you know? He, he's, he's skeptical about it. And the spirit of the depths reacts violently. It says he erupts, and then he fills young with intoxication. And so I want to point out that all of this stuff about Carl Jung's crazy visions, seeing, seeing and speaking to spirits and all that, despite the fact that Carl Jung himself explains how he accomplishes this, he talks about active imagination and how it works and all that stuff, um, despite all of that, he uses these words like, he was filled with intoxication, that a spirit spoke to him, and he was filled with intoxication. These are the kind of descriptors that you would see from somebody who was describing a mystic experience, who was describing a psychedelic experience, or something of the like. To feel intoxicated and to receive a vision or, or a voice, that's what that sounds like to me. I mean, you might call that insanity, and Young talked about that too. Remember, he, he talked about divine insanity. Like insanity and, and mysticism are really, really not far removed from one another. And isn't that interesting? You know, I want to I wanna I wanna know more about that. Alright, so the spirit of the depths gets mad and says, I have received your sprout, you who are to <clears throat> you who are to come. And mockery worshipped it, your child, the child of the one who is to come. Who should announce the father, a fruit that is older than the tree on which it grew? Okay, so Jesus. Um, that's, that's cryptic, isn't it? So the spirit of the depths, remember, he calls Carl Jung, you who, who are to come. And it's something like an allusion to this idea of rebirth. Like we know that people die to themselves and become reborn at every new epic of their life they become somebody new somebody more than they were once before somebody so different that you can't even connect the old self to the new self they're different beings you know and so there's always this this becoming part of of our psyche we're always changing and becoming something new and it's like this is what's being captured in the image of the desert starting to sprout with new life and the spirit of the depth says, I received your sprout. So that's what he's referring to. Um, and then he says something strange. He says, and mockery worshipped it, the sprout. And mockery worshipped it. And then he says something weirder. He says, the child of the one who is to come, who should announce the father, a fruit that is older than the tree on which it grew. Okay, so how do we make sense of that? All right, so when Jung encounters his soul and his desert begins to bloom, it's something like his sentience returning to animate his, his soul. Like <clears throat> when he closes his eyes and imagines himself within, you know, um, he's only trying to 
connect with himself. He's, he's blocking everything out. He's meditating, basically. And what he's done is he's brought his consciousness within. And when he does that, when he brings his consciousness within, it's like within his psyche, all the things that are in his psyche become alive with that consciousness. It's like he's given, he's given life to them. It's something weird. It's something like that. And then remember, the Spirit of the Depths says he received your sprout. So remember, if the sprout is received by the Spirit of the Depths, you have to kind of imagine, well, a sprout shooting out of the ground. What's received to the seed of that sprout is the ground. And so the Spirit of the Depths is sort of describing himself as the ground. The ground from which life and the soul can emerge like a plant, you know? So the spirit of the depths that he's been talking to all this time is now kind of revealing itself as something like the ground of being. You know, something deeply significant and, and prerequisite for, for all of all the rest of your, your experience. You know, it's deep, deep, deep down somewhere. And then there's this idea of when he says mockery worshipped it, I have to point out mockery and worship are opposites, you know? mock something and to worship something. Those are polar opposite inclinations. You know, to belittle something is mockery. To lift something up is worship. And so what you have here is another example of the syzygy or the Ouroboros that we've talked about many times. Carl Jung uses the word syzygy to describe kind of the the, the source and substance of, of being. You know, the deepest thing. The thing everything comes from. Uh, it's It's imagined as as opposites in union. That's what a syzygy is. That's what the Ouroboros is. And when, when Jordan Peterson talks about that uh, in Maps of Meaning, he uses the example of the um, kind of the earliest religion we have evidence of, which goes back to ancient, uh, ancient Mesopotamia. And he talks about their f- myth about the creation of the world, Apsu and Tiamat being the first gods, the only gods that exist. Apsu being the god of order, Tiamat being the goddess of chaos. One of them is represented as salt water. One of them is represented as fresh water. So they're both water. They're one thing, one thing in union. And when you take a man and a woman, like Tiamat and Apsu, and you put them together, what you get is a generative act. You get sex. You get creation. And that's what happens in that story. And this is the image that Carl Jung likes. And I can't help but agree. I, now I'm not saying I totally understand it. But I, it's, I'm very intrigued by that. It resonates with me in a way that it's hard for me to describe. That this idea of a syzygy, the union of opposites, is a description of God. And so when he says that mockery worshipped it, that's what, he, that's what he's referring to, I think. And then he says the child announcing the father. You know, So that's an illustration of the perennial oneness. You know, it's like... What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the secret there is that there's an egg inside the chicken, and there's a chicken inside the egg, always. So you've got this fractal repetition. You know, the, you have the whole in the part, and the part in the whole. That's a paradox. It's a paradox that's like a hallmark of mystic experience. So imagine when the child announces the father, a fruit that is older than the tree in which it grew that's a paradox, right? You don't get the child without the father. So how can the child announce the father? It doesn't make sense. But if the child is within the father and the father within the child, 
then suddenly you have a different image. The paradox kind of resolves itself there. And that is the image of the yin and the yang. That's also the chicken and the egg situation. It's, it's, it's something we understand, sort of. You know, it's not, it's not a strange idea to us, but it is, isn't it? And that paradox is so common in mystic experience. And another thing that's common that we see here is the notion uh, that, that the novelty brought by the child, whatever, whatever's new, you know, the child itself represents that, the thing that is new, that what that is is nothing but a revivified version of what has already been, right? The child is just a new version of the father or the mother, right? Right? That's all it is. So the child makes the father new, that's all, that's all the child is. It's the father, again, all over again, the same pattern repeating. And, and it reminds me of a scripture from the Bible, you know? The child makes the father new. And Corinthians says, Behold, all things are become new. And that's, that's it. That's exactly it. And what we're hitting on here is this idea of rebirth and this image of, a, of sort of a cyclical eternity, you know? Um, there's a fractal image there with a father and the child and the and the child together and and uh, and all of that. So, I just find it interesting how much of this strange little paragraph rings of psychedelic or mystic experience. You see all the hallmarks there, you know. All right, it goes on, and this is um, this is one of those passages in the Red Book that's italicized, and that just simply means um, that it's not Young speaking to these uh, these spirits within, but it's sort of the spirit speaking on their own to him, or maybe his soul or his self uh, speaking to him. And it, and it starts off like this. Our eyes were blinded, and our knowledge fell silent when we received your radiance. You, new spark of an eternal fire, into which night were you born? Okay, so there's a lot there too. So when he says that our eyes were blinded and our knowledge fell silent when we, when we received your radiance, what that immediately makes me think of is something that sometimes, uh, sometimes the word noetic is used. When people have a mystic experience, the, fe- the experience they have feels realer than real. It's hard to explain, but that's probably the best way of doing it. It feels realer than real. It's like in a whole other category of truth. And so anything else that you believe to be true has to correspond to this realer than real thing. If it doesn't, you, you just know instinctively that, it's, that it, you can't take it seriously. So all the other knowledge in your life has to be subservient to whatever it is that you, that you, that you believe is realer than real, that you put at the very top or in this whole other higher category of knowledge. And what it does is it makes all of the worldly knowledge that you have seem insufficient, you know? It's like you've got this one golden gem of information, you know, like this one with the universe experience that people talk about from mystic intuition, and anything else that you can think about that doesn't, that doesn't fit with the idea, that, you know, of, of, of the universe being one, let's say, you, you kind of you can't take it seriously anymore. You know, even if all the facts point in that direction, you know it's not what it's cracked up to be. And I think that's what he means when he says, our knowledge fell silent when we received your radiance. It's exactly. So your knowledge is as nothing 
compared to that experience. And there's a story about Thomas Aquinas that just popped in my head that's along the same lines. If you guys don't know Thomas Aquinas, he's one of the early church fathers and, and uh, Catholic church fathers, and he wrote a bunch of really important stuff, uh, theological stuff. And he, he had a mystic experience. And when he did, he said, basically, he was willing he was willing to burn all of the things he'd ever written because they were as nothing compared to the light of truth that he saw in that experience. And I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. That's how it feels. And then he says something, something interesting next where he says, you, you know, he's talking directly to you and me, but he's talking to Carl Jung as well. He says, you new spark of an eternal fire, new spark of an eternal fire. So every being is a new spark from an eternal fire. And that, that means things. It means, means that everything that exists, it comes from the same source. It means everything that exists is of the same substance, right? You all came from the eternal fire. You're all made of eternal fire. If eternal fire is God, and that's what you are, and that's what you're made of, how can you say that you aren't God? You have to start to begin to merge the idea of yourself with the idea of God. And that is what, that's what's being said here. You, new spark of an eternal fire, into which night were you born? And the question, into which night you were born, is, is, well, it's what era, what location, what context. It's like you are another manifestation of God. And what makes you different from all the others is the particularities, you know? And that's one of them. Into which night were you born? You know, what type of, what type of spark are you? What, what flavor of God are you? Something like that. It's amazing. All right, then it goes on. It says, your life is with he who has overcome himself and who has disowned his overcoming. Say that again. Your life is with he who has overcome himself and who has disowned his self-overcoming. So it's something like life requires overcoming your current self, right? You're always becoming something else. You're, so what you're doing is sort of well, civil war, right? You're fighting with yourself to become what you want to be next, whatever that is. And then he says, and who has disowned his self-overcoming. It's like once you overcome the self that you were, you also have to overcome overcoming, you know? And I think what that means is that it's a constant, unending, eternal process of becoming, of transformation, and it never ends. Then he goes on, he says, the constellation of your birth is an ill and changing star. These, O child of what is to come, are the wonders that will bear testimony that you are a veritable God. <laughs> Man. Okay, so when he says the constellation of your birth is an ill and changing star, what, what that is is a reference to what we all used to believe, you know, in the in the Middle Ages, let's say, um, or or and even even before then, into into uh, classical history, we believed that the stars under which we were born would preordain our life or or control our destiny. That's what we used to believe. That's what most people used to believe that there was something significant about when we were born and where we were born, and it all has to do with the stars above us. 
you know, the eternal undying stars that somehow preordain our destiny. But here he says, the constellation of your birth was ill and changing, which means what? It means your destiny is not clear, right? It's ever-changing. Your destiny is ever-changing, just like the stars above you uh, when you were born are ever-changing. And so that that is another allusion again to becoming or transformation, like we, like we were talking about a moment ago. And then when he says... These, O child of what is to come, are the wonders that will bear testimony that you are a veritable God. Christ, man, I don't know how, how, if there's a better way of saying that, that's, that's amazing. You are a veritable God. So it's something like, like our transforming nature is something like, it's something like being self-created because because we're becoming something new all the time, right? Whatever we are, the, the person we are, our personality, our psychology, you know, we, whatever we learn and whatever experiences we have and whatever discipline we impose upon ourselves, all of those things are our choice. And all of those things transform the thing that we are into something new. So there's a nod here to, to our self being something that is self-created, that we're in control of what we become. We're in control of the transformation, of the ride that we're on, you know? And that's evidence of our godhood because God is the, is the thing that can create, is the thing that can create from nothing. And it's the power behind transformation. So it causes everything to constantly transform. So it's like we create ourselves anew just as God created in the beginning and endure eternally just like God. So we're, we're seeing, again, evidence, more evidence, that Jung should be merging the idea of self and God into one thing. Remember, you are a veritable God, he said. So then now we go back to Jung arguing with the spirit of the depths, and it goes like this. The spirit of the depths opened my vision, and let me become aware of the birth of the new God. The divine child approached me out of the terrible ambiguity, the evil good, the inhuman human, the ungodly godly. Okay, so a couple things here. He says, the spirit of the depths opened my vision. And I just can't help but, but point out that that's the kind of language you see like in holy books when people have a vision, you know, a revelation. Their eyes are opened, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what he says. The spirit of the depths opened my vision and let me become aware of the birth of the new God. And I think the birth of the new God is something that's being born within, right? It's the new young. It's the new young that he's becoming. That's the new God. And it's something that's being born within himself. And then he says... The divine child approached me out of terrible ambiguity. Now, where when, when it says the divine child approached me, where did the divine child come from? Well, it approaches from where? Well, from the source. Where does a divine child come from? From God. So it's God that Carl Jung is calling the terrible ambiguity. And then he, he, he doesn't leave it up to us. He says, the evil good, the inhuman human, the ungodly godly. So what are those? Those are opposites. 
So the ambiguity is exactly the syzygy. It's the union of opposites. Like, what does it mean? If you have evil and good, they couldn't be more opposite things. You put them together, what do you get? The inhuman and the human, you put them together, what do you get? So some would like to say you get nothing, that they cancel each other out somehow, but that's bullshit. There's something way more mystical happening. Evil and good are what they're they're the coincidence of opposites, as Ian McGilchrist said. You can't have one without the other. There's no such thing as just good. And that's how so many people, especially in the Christian community, like to think about God as something all good. And Young is saying that's half of God. The all good part is half of God. And it doesn't even exist on its own. It can't. It's part of a syzygy. It exists only with evil. That's the other half of God. Something like that. All right, he goes on. I understood that the new God would be in the relative. If the God is absolute beauty and goodness, how should he encompass the fullness of life, which is beautiful and hateful, good and evil? How can man live in the womb of a God if the Godhead himself attends only to one half of him? And I think this is where Jung really starts to get into this. And I remember having this same epiphany when I was a kid and I was studying a religion and I had these reluctances, you know, like, I, I guess I was like a radical monotheist, you might say. Like, I believed God was one, even back then, even before mystic experience. I believe that was the truth, that, that the identity of God as one thing couldn't be argued. And the people that believed God was, that there were many gods and so forth, that that, that was all a mistake. And so this, this radical monotheism, it wouldn't allow me to really believe the parts of my religion, the parts of the religion I grew up in, this Protestant Christian religion, it, it wouldn't allow me to believe the things that they believe that you might say, you might say a Muslim would be sensitive to, you know, like I know I wasn't a Catholic, but you could say when a Catholic suggests that, that, you know, you can pray to Mary or to the saints and that they have some godhood or they have some, you know, eternal existence and power in the afterlife that can, that can, you know, be used to help human beings, that that is a step too far. And I agree. But I also, I also thought that the idea of the devil or Lucifer was a step too far. And the idea of hell was a step too far. And, uh, you know, I simply could not make sense of the idea of God as one and also believe in angels and demons and the devil. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And this is what Jung is struggling with. It's the same problem I was struggling with. So he says, I understood the new God would be in the relative. And that's interesting. It's like in the interaction. Like what's, what, what's relative mean? If something is relative in, in, in proportion to something else. And the thing and the something else are the opposites that we've been talking about. It's the relationship between good and evil. It's the relationship between being and non-being, between subject and object. Whatever opposites you want to you wanna use to help conceptualize this, it's the interaction or the process of the interaction. It's the relationship between opposites. And it's exactly what Jordan Peterson said in Maps of Meaning. He said, 
that the Ouroboros are the opposites. Chaos on one hand and order on the other. And the force that mediates between them is sort of created by their interaction. And he and Jordan Peterson calls it the divine child, the same language that Carl Jung uses. That's the new God. That's the thing that's created from the union of opposites. And again, the heart, the heart of this is when he says, God, if, if the God is absolute beauty and goodness, how should he encompass the fullness of life, which is beauty and hateful, good and evil? You know, it's, he's, you're saying that God cannot be all, only considered all good because that's only half of the picture, only half of the syzygy. And if you think about it, it's only half of you. You aren't all good. You're part good and part evil, right? That's how it is, period. You can't have one without the other. The balance is another question, but you always have both. And that's interesting because Jung is saying that that is true of God and it is true of us. And so what you have is another fractal picture that, that shows up. When he says, how can man live in the womb of a god? If the Godhead himself attends to only half of him. And that's exactly, that's exactly right. If, God, if human beings are both good and evil, then God has to be both good and evil. And that's a fractal image. It's a picture of God and man being like a reflection of one another. And again, fractal geometry and images are, are a hallmark of mystic experience. And Jung seems to be having one. You know, and he's not doing any drugs to get there, seemingly. He's, he's getting there by sheer determination of will and meditation. Our right, young goes on. He says, Therefore, after his death, Christ had to journey to hell. Christ first had to become the Antichrist, his underworldly brother. All right, so if you're not a Catholic, this might sound strange to you, um, but Catholics do believe, and there's some evidence in the Bible for, for this or so, some defense you could be made, that when Jesus died, that he was dead for three days before he resurrected. So where he was on those three days, at least according to the Catholics, was hell, that Jesus died and went to hell, conquered it once and for all, and then, and then rose again. So he, that's the idea of Jesus' resurrection conquering death and giving us salvation. That's the idea. He went to hell. He conquered it for us. He came back to give us that gift. Something along those lines. But here's what I want to point out. When Jesus goes to, when Christ goes to hell, Jung says he first had to become the Antichrist. What? Does that mean, right? How can how can Jesus Christ become the Antichrist? And why would he want to? And what does that mean? And it's so strange. Until you remember the syzygy, right? Christ is not Christ by himself. That's one half of a syzygy. Christ is the Savior. So what's the opposite of that? Well, it's the Antichrist. And he had to go to hell to become the Antichrist. Why? So that he could complete the syzygy, so he could become his complete self. And that's another reference to the oneness of mystic intuition. It's another reference to the oneness of God. It's interesting. I don't know if anybody ever put it to you that way. And he goes on, he says, if we do not have the depths, 
How do we have the heights? Yet you fear the depths and do not want to confess that you are afraid of them. It is good, though, that you fear yourselves. Say it out loud that you are afraid of yourselves. It is wisdom to fear oneself. Okay, so hair stands up on my arms because it reminds me of something Jordan Peterson said one time that made the hair stand up on my arms, which was, I'm not going to do justice to it, but it was something like, you are more than you imagine by a tremendous margin. And I, I believe that 100%. If you come to understand that you are more than you think you are, by such a big margin, you couldn't believe it. If you just discovered one day that you were way more than you thought you were, wouldn't you be afraid? Wouldn't you be afraid of what you can do? Wouldn't you be afraid of why you didn't know up until now that you, that you were capable of such things? You know, it's fear of the unknown. And there's kind of nothing less known or understood than our very selves, you know? We understand ourselves very little, at least on the deep levels. So this business about if we do not have the depths, how do we have the heights? Again, is another reference to opposites, the depths and the heights. Now, they're both required. You can't have one without the other. And so that's what he's pointing out. Then he says, yet you fear the depths. And what are the depths? You know, he's been talking to the spirit of the depths. And that's something within him. That's something deep and unknown within him that has powers and knowledge that are beyond him. That's something like the unconscious. And what's, what's there in the unconscious? Remember, if the unconscious is something like God, which is what I've said, you know, then what's there is something like potential. So the potential for what? For you to become something new, you know, for you to continue to transform. That, that's what's there. That's what you tap into there. And you should fear that. You should fear your own potential, you know? Well, it's somebody like Adolf Hitler, you know? If you, could, if you have the potential to become something like that, maybe you should be a little cautious, a little fearful of what you're capable of, don't you think? And then he says, and do not want to confess that you are afraid of them. It's like there's a little bit of uh, embarrassment involved with the idea that you're afraid of yourself. It's like, you, you know... Why should you be? And don't you have control over yourself? And those sorts of questions pop up. So there's a reluctance to even admit that you could be afraid of yourself. And then Carl Jung says something. He says, it is good, though, that you fear yourselves. Then he says, say it out loud that you are afraid of yourself. Like He's asking us to do that right now. I am afraid of myself. What does that mean? He says it's wisdom to fear oneself. It's wisdom to fear the potential that you have within. And Carl Jung likes to reference uh, religion, including Christianity, but I'll do it now. Uh, Proverbs 9, who you guys, you guys probably know, says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And what does Jung say here? It is wisdom to fear oneself. All right, what has he done? What has he done? He's replaced the word God with yourself. That's what he did. He took the proverb and he replaced the word God with yourself. And that's what we've been doing this whole time. We've been slowly coming closer, bringing the idea of the self and God closer and closer together, trying to see them as one thing. Then he goes on, he says, With fear and trembling... 
go thus into the depths. He who journeys to hell also becomes hell. So there's this idea, there's this idea that if you go to hell, that you'll become hell, like Jesus went to hell and became the Antichrist. And But becoming hell, even though that sounds terrible, um, it also it also can be seen in a different way. It's like, if you become hell, then don't you sort of have at, at your command the powers of hell, you know? Don't you, don't you have, if you, if that's, if you've become hell, don't you have the power of hell in your hands? Isn't it something like a weapon to you or a tool to you, right? If you've become it, like, what do you take away from that experience? You take away something, you become something from, from that experience, something more, something that you weren't before. And, and this is the instruction that we're getting with fear and trembling, thus go into the depths why do we go there? Because there's something there worthwhile, you know? And this is what Carl Jung's done when he went into himself, into the darkness of himself, because he wanted to find something worthwhile. And there he found his soul, you know? Goes on, he says, But the depths have changed themselves into death. We cannot slay death. If we still want to overcome death, then we must enliven it. All right, so the hair stands up on my arms again. That is so cool. He says, but the depths have changed themselves into death. Well, how do we go into death? He says, we can't slay it, you know? He said, if you want to overcome death, you can't kill it. You must enliven it. And it reminds me of two things, you know? To enliven is the opposite of death. So you see another image of the Ouroboros. You see another call to complete it. You take the death, you connect it with the life. That's how you complete the Ouroboros. That's how you complete the syzygy. You bring opposites together. And what that does is it creates new life. When you bring opposites together, it's generative, right? That's how you conquer death. You bring the opposites together. You infuse them with life. You force them to bring something new into the world. And that bring, that starts the process over again. That starts the clock over again. That is how we conquer death. That is how we create immortality. So it's like, you know, to overcome death is the promise of religion. It's, it's what Jesus Christ explicitly says, you know, to overcome death. It's also what Gilgamesh did, you know, way back in ancient Mesopotamia. Who, who he went to the underworld to bring back the plant that would give eternal life. How about Buddhism? Buddha, who, who gives people the eightfold path and the way to live their lives so that they can overcome desire, overcome the gods, and reach nirvana where they never die. And all of the sorts of afterlives that every religion paints that says there's a way for us to continue on after we're death, after we're dead, rather. It doesn't it's not the end. So death and enliven are opposites, so that's one of one part. And we must complete death by bringing it together with life in order to conquer it, in order to reveal this eternal process, the process back and forth between both sides of the, of the syzygy, that process that's generative, that creates, you know, it creates the cosmos, it creates everything, you and I. Uh, shout out to... Um, Alfred North Whitehead, the, the process philosopher who understands that idea much better than I do. All right, this goes on. It says something interesting. Reflect in good heart upon evil. 
this is the way to the ascent. And it's almost like somebody somebody said that to me when I was a kid, when I started down that path of questioning whether the idea of angels or demons or a devil or hell or, or any of that stuff was cohesive with the idea of one God. And this is what Carl Jung in the Red Book is asking us to do. Reflect upon evil, because that is the way to the ascent. Why in the world would meditating on evil be a way to an ascent? Why would it be an enlightenment? Why would it be a pro- progress? Why, why would that be it to our advantage? And the idea is, that's the part of ourselves that we're afraid of, that we hide from, like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from the voice of God, right? We hide from, we're embarrassed, and we're afraid of our faults. We're afraid of our, um, you know, our insufficiencies. And he's saying those are the things we need to reflect on Reflect upon evil, upon our capacity for evil, upon the existence of evil in the world. See it in the world and see it in ourselves and understand that it's part of us, a necessary part of us. And of all things, it's one half of the world evil. And until you know that, until you can incorporate that into yourself, like Jung always talked about integrating the shadow, until you can do that, you're not going to move upwards. You're not going to ascend higher along the path of psychic, you know, enlightenment or, or, or development or whatever you want to call it. It's beautiful. A lot contained in that little sentence. And then he starts talking about hell. It goes like this. Hell is when the depths come to you and with all that you no longer are or all or are not yet capable of. Hell is when the depths come to you with all that you no longer are or are no or are not yet capable of. Huh. So what what are the things that you no longer are or the things that you aren't yet capable of? Well, the things that you aren't any longer are the things that you might be again, right? That you aren't now. The things that you're not ca- yet capable of are things that you might be in the future but you aren't now. Both things are something like potential. And and again, just like when we're talking about the unconscious, the potential was just another word, again, synonym for God as far as I'm concerned. So hell is when the depths come to you with God. When you are confronted by God from within. I mean, Jesus, I don't know a better way of describing a mystic experience than that. When you encounter God within. He goes on, he says, Hell is when you know that your having to is also a wanting to, and that you yourself are responsible for it. Hell is when you know that everything serious that you have planned with yourself is also laughable, that everything fine is also brutal, that everything good is also bad. But the deepest hell is when you realize that hell is also no hell but a cheerful heaven. In this respect, a heaven, and in that respect, a hell. This is the ambiguity of the God. He is born from a dark ambiguity and rises to a bright ambiguity. Ambiguity is the way of life. All right, so, boy, um, there's there's a lot there. But let's start with this first bit because I think it's interesting. He says, hell is when you know that your having to is also a wanting to, and you're responsible for that. 
What does that mean? So I think it means something like when you acknowledge a desire, like when you want something, that desire pins you down. It demands satisfaction. You know, if you want something, you want it. And you have to do something about it. It's like a call to action. So desires, you might call that wanting to. They create obligations, don't they? Having to, don't they? And this servitude we do to ourselves. We put ourselves in that. Anytime we want something, we have to do something to get it. So just the fact of having desires is putting ourselves in this, this prison of, of having to, you know? And then he says, hell is when you know that everything serious that you have planned with yourself is laughable. Everything fine is brutal. Everything good is bad. This is another reference to the syzygy. It's everything is more than you think it is. You know, everything has got two sides. And that's what he says next. He says, the deepest hell is when you realize that hell is also a cheerful heaven. In this respect, hell. In that respect, heaven. Right? Like two sides of a coin. In this respect, order, and that respect, chaos, but they're one coin. In this respect, the material cosmos, and that respect, God. Opposites, but all one thing, the syzygy. They're the same thing. And that's the ambiguity that he's talking about. How can something be good and bad? Both. That's the ambiguity he's, he's talking about. He says this is the ambiguity of God. Then he says... Ambiguity is the way of life. And that's interesting. It's like what ambiguity means is uncertainty. It's sort of like this and sort of like that. It reminds me of the way that quantum physics talks about um, particles at the quantum level, that they exist in multiple states at once. They're, they're you know, ambiguous. They're a wave and a particle at once. Something like that. At the deepest level of matter, you have ambiguity like that. And he's saying that is the way of life. And I think that something like ambiguity of meaning, you know, things mean or can mean multiple things, that's sort of like, that's sort of like infinite meaning. You know, if meaning is, is sort of wishy-washy, uh, it can be molded to mean whatever you want it to mean. It can be, something can be molded to do whatever you want it to do. Think about a stem cell, you know. What's, what's more ambiguous than a stem cell? It can become any cell. All it needs is the right instruction. It can become any cell. And this is what he's talking about when he says ambiguity is the way of life. It's to be flexible. It's to be adaptable. It's to allow yourself to change always. Because if you resist change, then you're no longer in harmony with the world. It's changing all around you all the time. You have to go with the flow. As mystic experience tells you, as psychonauts will tell you, as Buddhists will tell you, you, you can't resist. You must go with the flow, you know? It reminds me of this idea of junk DNA that we talk about sometimes that's also ambiguous, you know? It's this mysterious DNA that we have in our bodies is most of our DNA, really. And we don't know what it does. And sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't turn on. It doesn't do anything. But it can be used to turn something on. Whatever it is that we need turned on, you know? It's like we find ourselves in a new environment and our bodies have to adapt in some extreme way. Well, then this random junk DNA turns on to, to allow us to transform in a way that we need to, to adapt. So we have to be ambiguous. We have to be, we have to be 
willing to transform. We have to kind of be transformation. He also says, he who lives feels the going onward and immortality. And this is another another step in bringing the idea of the self and God closer together. He's just saying that when you're alive, you feel a certain immortality. You know, people don't don't feel like they're ever going to die, at least till they till least till they become very sick or very hurt or very or very old. We feel ourselves to be eternal, you know? And so there's some intuition of our, our of our immortality that we get just by being alive, being aware, being conscious. And he goes on, he says, When the hero was slain, and in the, in the meaning recognized in the absurdity, I became aware of the birth of the God. The one arose from the, from the melting together of the two. He was born as a child from my own human soul. I must say that the God could not come into being before the hero had been slain. All right, so... We talk a lot, a lot about the mythological uh, importance of the hero, but I don't think it's important here. I think what he's saying when he says, when the hero was slain, he's talking about your old self or your current self, you know, that has to be slain in order for you to become somebody new, right? You have to abandon those things. You have to make sacrifices and transform. So he says, when the hero was slain, it's like, that's your old self, then he says, and the meaning recognized in the absurdity. Now, he used that in the last the last episode we did as a syzygy. Meaning and absurdity were, are the opposites that he's talking about. So he saw the meaning in the absurdity, which is something that is a hallmark of mystic experience. He says absurdity. I, I like to think of paradox. I think it's a feeling of paradox. It's a very mystical and powerful feeling. But he says that is when he became aware of the birth of the God, when he found meaning in absurdity. And anyone who's had a mystic experience and feels enlightened by it, you know what he means by that. You found meaning in absurdity. And those opposites united, meaning and absurdity, create something new. And what is that? In this case, it's the new God, which is the new self. It's whatever Jung is going to become. The hero is slain, his old self in order to pave the way for his new self, for the birth of the new God. Then he says the one. By that, you know, by that one, I, I, I mean God. That's a mystic insight that God is one. So he says the one arose from the melting together of the two. And that's the syzygy, right? He was born as a child from my own soul. That's exactly right. Like, like the, the, self, the self that Carl Jung is becoming is born from within and slowly grows to become him, you know? And that's why he says, I must say that the God could not come into being before the hero had been slain. He had to make the sacrifices to destroy what he didn't want to be, the evil that he perceived, that he, so that he could become something new. And that's what gave birth to his new self, to the new God. God arises from within All right, we're getting there. We're getting there, you guys. He says, The new God laughs at imitation and discipleship. He needs no imitators and no pupils. The God is his own follower in man. He imitates himself. 
Golly, that is so good. God is his own follower in man. He imitates himself. Jesus, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that means God, when it says God is his own follower, that means that the thing that we are is the thing that we abstract and conceptualize as God, and we pretend that it's not us. We hold it some high, in some high esteem and pretend that it exists in some spiritual place that's not the here and now. And then we all follow that shining star like, you know, like a... Like we're worshiping, and what we're worshiping is our self and what we're imitating. You know, human beings learn through imitation. You know, you see it with monkeys, and we all make the joke, monkey see, monkey do. But if you have children, you see it in your children. You see how they how they see you and other people, and they try to do what you do, and they try to make sense of it all, but through imitation. They learn through imitation. And what are we imitating? According to Young, it's God we're imitating. Which reminds me of the Bible again. It says that we're created in the image of God. We learn through imitation and we transform in the process. And what we are imitating, what we're acting out, is God itself. And we transform and become like God is continually transforming and becoming. All right, then he says this. He says, we are single if we are in ourselves but communal in relation to what is outside of us. But if we are outside of ourselves, then we are single and selfish in the communal. All right, so it's confusing. There's, there's not a lot to it, but it's confusing, so let's take it apart. He says we are single if we are in ourselves. So this is kind of like what Jung is doing now, where he's meditating and going into himself, and, and he's, he, his consciousness is focused entirely on the thing he is, not on anything outside of him, just on the thing he is. And in that instance, you're like what Huxley called us. Huxley called us island universes, you know? Our consciousnesses aren't available to any other consciousnesses, only to ours. So if we're single in ourselves, we're like an island universe, and there's only us, and we're, and we're it. We're God, and that's it. But when we're not in ourselves, when we're in the world like we are most of the time, we are communal in relation to what is outside of us. So we're part of we're part of that of that thing. You can call it your community, and that's true. You can call it your family, and that's true. You can call it the cosmos, and that's true. You know. And he says, "But if we are outside of ourselves, then we are single and selfish in the communal." So what that means here is, if what we are in ourselves and we turn around and look outside, if what we're seeing outside of us is also the same thing inside of us, then everything in, in the world is ourself. Other people are ourself, you know, uh, the cosmos itself, the, the, the planets, the, the plants, the trees, all of it is us. And that's why he says that we're selfish in the communal, because the community is us. Now, if you don't believe if you don't believe that we are outside of ourselves, I mean, we can point to the fact of other people, other consciousnesses, but if you don't believe that we're outside of ourselves, there's kind of a psychological explanation that comes from a philosopher named Hegel that I love, and it goes like this. He says, self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. It has come outside itself since it finds itself as an other being. 
So that's how we come outside of ourselves. If you don't believe we are both in ourselves and outside ourselves, think about that. You can think about yourself. And when you do, it's almost like you're picturing yourself as a third party. If you think about yourself, you're something that's thinking about yourself, aren't you? Does it feel like the same thing? What kind of doesn't, you know? You're the, you're the object and subject at the same time. You're both the subject, the you that's sitting there, or the object, rather, the you that's sitting there, and the subject, the part that's observing yourself or thinking about yourself or contemplating yourself. You're two selves, and that's what self-consciousness is all about. You're the self that gets to know itself. I know it all sounds strange and hippy-dippy and weird, but that's how self-consciousness is. If you think about it for a second, you are both yourself inside and your something else. As Hegel says, it has come outside of itself since it finds itself as an other being. And that's how you find yourself. You find yourself as not yourself, but as, well, kind of, kind of both. You find yourself as yourself and something else. And that's the paradox. That's another one of these weird paradoxes. All right, he goes on, he says, if we set a God outside of ourselves, he tears us loose from the self. But if the God moves into the self, he snatches us from what is outside of us. We arrive at singleness in ourselves. So the God becomes communal to what is outside of us, but single in relation to us. No one has my God, but my God has everyone, including myself. So it is always only the one God, despite his multiplicity. You arrive at him in yourself, and only through yourself seizing you. Jesus, man, that is powerful stuff. So he's basically going with this idea that he says, if we set a God outside of ourself, he tears us loose from ourself. That's how we become another, another person. You know, um, that that's how we have this self-consciousness. We've got the God outside of us, which is the same thing that's within us. See what I mean? That's the picture that's being painted. And then he says, if God moves into the self, he snatches us from what's outside of us and we arrive at singleness in ourselves. And when he says we arrive at singleness, that, that again reminds me of completing the syzygy. When God moves into the self, then you have the union of opposites, God and man, right, coming together. And then he says, so the God becomes communal to, which, what, to what is outside of us. One thing. God is one thing. It's what's outside and what's within, all wrapped in one. And then he says, no one has my God Right, that's his own consciousness. But my God has everyone, including myself, and that's that. That's that oneness. That's the, That's the recognition that consciousness is the same thing as God. Everything is one. And then he says, "So it is always only the one God, despite his multiplicity." Right. So if this is so good, so if God is consciousness, and every being, every human being you've ever known has been conscious, is it like there's seven billion gods out there? Well, kind of, yes, God is many, but also one, 
Because the thing that animates every human being, the consciousness that's behind every human being is the same. So again, we have paradox. We have God as one and many. That's an, again the paradox of mystic experience. And then he says something awesome. He says, you arrive at him in yourself. You find God in yourself. Only through yourself seizing you. It's like God has to reach out from within and shake you around and say, pay attention, look at me, I'm here. And that's certainly a way I could describe it happening with me. It's like a, I don't, I don't know if I use the word obsession, but it's definitely never gone away in me. It's like God reaches out from within ourselves to seize us, to confront us with the reality of, of God, which has been within all along. All right, we're almost done here. He says, you find yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, you find yourself in your desire. If you desire yourself, you produce the divine son in your embrace with yourself. Your desire is the father of the God, yourself the mother, but the son is the new God, your master. Okay. All right, so when he says you find yourself in your desire, it's, it's like the, the self that you find, the I, the subject of your desire. That's what you're finding. You said you, you find yourself in your desire. Like when you want something, you recognize that there's something that wants something. So what you're recognizing as the thing that wants something, that's you, man. You're, you're the thing. You recognize the subject of your desire. It reminds me of Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. It, it makes me think of, I desire, therefore I am. Something like that. And he says, if you desire yourself, right? So, so when you desire, you find yourself in that feeling, in that desire. But if what you desire is yourself, then when you find yourself in your desire, you're completing the syzygy. You're, you're coming in union with God right then and there. What you truly are. It reminds me of what the, what the ancient Greeks said on you know, the temple of Apollo at Delphi. I said, know thyself. Right at the top of the temple when you walked in, that's what you saw. Know thyself. And when you know yourself to be God, and when, and when that's what you desire, then you're bringing together the syzygy. You're recognizing the God within. You're bringing it together with yourself, the opposite of God. And in your embrace, in the bringing of, the, bringing of those things together, you create the the generative union of opposites. And Jung describes that by saying, your desire is the father of the God, yourself the mother, but the son is the new God, your master. And, and it's like, it's like you recognize that you are one with God, that you and God are the same thing. And when you do that, God becomes aware that it's God. God becomes aware that it's God through your consciousness. And that's something different than what you used to be. You know, you didn't, you didn't used to know you were God. And when you find out that you are, it changes you. You become something vastly different. That's the new God that Young is talking about. And, it, and it's your master. And it should be, right? Shouldn't God be your master? Right? It's amazing. It's amazing. And then lastly, he says, your God leads you to the God of others and through that to the true neighbor. 
to the neighbor of the self in others. So what does this mean? This means that when you finally recognize that the God is within you, that you, you and God are one, that you can bring the idea of self and God together, that you and God are one thing, then that allows you to see that other people are God also. It allows you to see that other people are you also. And it's strange that he uses the word true neighbor because I think, well, I think it's intentional because it harkens back to the Bible, which said, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Why should you love your neighbor as yourself? Because according to Jung, when you recognize the God within, you see the same thing in others, and you recognize that your neighbor is yourself. You are God, and they are God together. Amazing. So that brings us to our conclusion. Jung titled this particular fantasy, The Conception of God. And throughout, he struggles with paradox, with the coincidence of opposites, and with the ambiguity of meaning. He sees within himself civil war, and the feuding powers are his soul, the spirits that dwell within, and his self. He doesn't know which of these personages is Carl Jung, or if perhaps they all are. He both desires to know the truth of what he is and fears the answer. He fears himself. But why? Because we fear what we do not understand. And nothing is lesser understood to us than ourselves. It's the whole idea of the unconscious. To not understand what you are brings us back again to paradox. We see the same fear and desire to know God and the same paradox. God is both good and evil, the absurd and the meaningful, something and nothing. But what could this mean? Jung confronts the idea of God as the syzygy, as the paradox-producing union of opposites. It both is and is not, somehow. It is potentiality, but potential for what exactly? The answer comes from Jung's initial desire to know himself. When he saw within and met there many beings, he knew that he was not one but many. When he dwelt within, he came to understand that the many are also one, opposites united, just as with the syzygy. This connection showed him the truth, the fractal truth, that God and himself are one. God and material being are opposites in union, both halves of a syzygy. One cannot exist without the other because they are one thing. As Jung said, the deepest hell is when you realize that hell is, no, is also no hell, in this respect heaven and in that respect hell. In this way, God is, in this respect, being, and in that respect, consciousness. So we are God. We are its mother and father and its offspring, the new God. We are continually transforming and becoming new, a new creation, a new reality. This realization leads you to the God of others, as Jung said. And so we extend our Godhood beyond ourself to all things. 
We are God within and God without in communion. We are the God that imitates himself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.